Welcome to week 19, we think, of Dialogue Gospel Study on Alma 43 through 52 with our guest instructor, Dr. Patrick Mason. I'm Rebecca Deschweinitz, and as a member of the Dialogue Foundation Board, we'll be conducting today from my home in Provo, Utah. As a reminder, and for those of you who are joining us for the first time, our previous lessons are all available as podcasts at dialoguejournal.com, where you can also find the entire 50 plus years of the journal. Video recordings of these lessons can also be found on our YouTube channel, which is linked on our website as well. Dr. Mason's lesson will be added to those by the end of the day. If uh, you enjoy having free, easy access to more than five decades of fabulous dialogue scholarship, art, fiction, and personal voices, and if you have loved, as I have, these gospel study lessons, we invite you to help support the mission and ongoing work of dialogue. We'll uh, post in the chat a, a phone number that you can send a text to that will set you up to, uh, to donate, or you can go to the subscribe and donate link on dialoguejournal.com. We invite those of you who are with us live on Zoom to post comments and ask questions through the chat function. As always, please be respectful and relevant as you do so. We look forward to integrating some of your online reflections, questions, and discussion into today's lesson at a couple of points. Besides myself and folks who are offering prayers today, Dialogue Board Chair Michael Austin and fellow board member Christian Kimball may also make appearances on your screen from time to time as they help out with technical issues and facilitate discussion. We're happy to have some of you joining on our live Facebook stream and appreciate and are aware of the conversations that are happening over there as well. Uh, Chris and I are, are not adept at uh, juggling uh, so many things at once, so we probably won't be bringing in comments um, from there, but we know that there are fabulous discussions happening over there as well. Uh, and also, as usual, if things get disconnected there, we'll get them up and running as soon as possible. We are thrilled to have Professor Patrick Mason teaching us today. Dr. Mason holds the Leonard J. Arrington Chair of Mormon History and Culture at Utah State University, where he is an Associate Professor of Religious Studies and History. He is the author or editor of several books, including Mormonism, Violence, uh, Mormonism and Violence, uh, The Battles of Zion, and Planted, Belief and Belonging in an Age of Doubt. He is a past board member and chair of the Dialogue Foundation. Dialogue is committed to providing a space for the expression of diverse perspectives and for some of the faith's most vibrant thinking. We're grateful for all the blood, sweat, and tears that Patrick has put into Dialogue and for his preparation for today's lesson and willingness to take on these particular Book of Mormon chapters. Uh, perhaps no one is better suited to do so. But as is true with any Latter-day Saint scripture study class, the views expressed today will be those of the individual teacher and do not necessarily reflect those of the Dialogue Foundation, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, or any other organization. We'll begin today with music, Where Can I Turn for Peace? This performance will be by the Salt Lake Institute Choir. The lyrics, of course, are those of poet and novelist Emily Thane. And if you're not familiar with her work for Dialogue, I'll invite you to take a look at her personal essay of the same name, Where Can I Turn for Peace, which appeared in our fall 2006 issue. Her poem, Things Happen, which appeared in the summer 1990 issue, and How Much for the Earth, 
a suite of poems about time for considering from winter 1984. And we'll link to those in the chat. After the music, our opening prayer will be offered by Byron Moss. Byron is a lawyer by trade, but not after the Order of Zeezrom, living in Southern California, the true land of Zion, as I'm told, and my husband agrees. <laughs> he serves as a high counselor in his stake, assigned to the local YSA ward. His claims to fame include one, serving in the Canada-Montreal mission with Sister Cheryl Lundbruno, being married for 32 years to the remarkable Debbie Miller Moss and raising five equally remarkable daughters, and being the seventh child of the incomparable Armand L. Moss. Our Father in heaven, we are most grateful for this Sabbath day, the opportunity we have to gather due to this technology and to study the scriptures together. We're thankful for Brother Mason and the time and preparation he has taken to um, prepare to lead this discussion today and ask thee to bless him with thy spirit that he might present the things that he has prepared in a way that would be pleasing unto thee and to him as well. We're thankful for the life of thy son, for the example he is to us, and ask thee to bless us that as we read thy sacred scriptures that we might draw closer to him and redouble our efforts to be more like him. Again, Father, we thank thee for thy many blessings and say these things now in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you, Byron. Thanks for that opening prayer. Um, uh, really grateful to, to have Byron with us, and, and I asked him to, uh, to offer the opening prayer. Uh, Byron is uh, one, one of the children, as, as his bio said, of, of Armand and Ruth Moss, and as those of you in the dialogue community know, uh, we lost Armand uh, last weekend, I think August 1st. And um, Armand uh, had become a, a really, not only a, a mentor and a colleague to me, but a friend, especially during uh, the last few years that I lived in Southern California. Um, I love Armand and, uh, and was uh, really sorry at his passing. And so, um, so today's lesson, uh, at least in my mind and heart, is, is dedicated to Armand, uh, who gave so much not only uh, to dialogue, but to our, our broader community as well. Uh, and, and just uh, looking, reading the paper this morning, uh, the Salt Lake Tribune, I saw a, a beautiful obituary for, for Armand. Uh, and the thing that touched me the most was a paragraph towards the end where, where he said, and I think that these were words that were from his personal history that he wrote for his, his children, where he said, you know, and I'm paraphrasing here, he said, you know, uh, after as many years on this planet, he lived, you know, to be what, 92 or 93, uh, he said, I've, I've really come to learn that really the only things that matter are the two great commandments, to learn to love God and to learn to love one another. Um, and so I, um, so I hope, Armand, uh, that, that this lesson is a, a fitting tribute to, to you and, and, and your life. So I want to share my screen here. I've got a, uh, I've got a PowerPoint uh, that, that, that I'm going to be using today. Uh, all right. I assume people can see this. Somebody uh, jump in and tell me if the technology is not working, but I'll proceed as if it is. So 
so the, the opening hymn today uh, that I chose is this beautiful, beautiful hymn. And I love that rendition, really beautifully done. And, and the lyrics, um, uh, you know, I, uh, I'll, I'll say I, I profoundly felt the spirit listening to that and, and pondering on those words again, those beautiful words by Emma Luthane. Um, and again, here's, uh, here's my dedication to Armand and, and his beloved Ruth. But, um, but these beautiful, beautiful words by Emma Luthane. Uh, where can I turn for peace? Uh, and, you know, the Savior prophesied that, um, that we would have wars and rumors of wars. Uh, this has always been true throughout human history. It's true today. We see conflict all around us. We see conflict in our world in our nation, in our streets, in our workplaces, in our families. Most of this conflict doesn't end up being violent, but much of it does. And so people are hurting. People are suffering in lots of different ways. People are asking themselves, I think each one of us asks ourselves, where can I find peace? Where can I turn for peace? And so people want and need the peace that the Savior brings, the peace that the gospel brings. I'm also reminded the the timing here, uh, whether coincidental or not, but this week we commemorated, not celebrated, but commemorated the 75th anniversary of the dropping of the atomic bomb on Hiroshima. Uh, and I'm reminded of some things that uh, some leaders of our church said in the wake of that. So first of all, President J. Reuben Clark in general conference less than a year afterwards, he talked about the violence of the war. And then he said, then as the crowning savagery of war, we as Americans wiped out hundreds of thousands of civilian population with the atom bomb in Japan. Few, if any, of the ordinary civilians being any more responsible for the war than we were, and perhaps no more aiding Japan in the war than we were aiding America. Military men are now saying that the atom bomb was a mistake. It was more than that. It was a world tragedy. And the worst of the atomic bomb tragedy is not that not only did the people of the United States not rise up in protest against this savagery, not only did it not shock us to read of this wholesale destruction of men, women, and children, and cripples, but that it actually drew from the nation at large approval of this fiendish butchery. Or think about the words of Elder John A. Whitsow on CBS radio in April of 1946, again, less than a year after the dropping of the bomb. He said, the hearts of men were already bleeding from the wounds of long years of warfare. Now the new power seemed as an added unspeakable horror that promised a new type of destruction, so awful that the hearts of men failed them. The rising ashes of Hiroshima and Nagasaki appeared as burnt offerings. To the incarnation of the world's evil. 40 years later, Emma Luthane wrote a series of poems that Rebecca mentioned in the opening that were published in dialogue. She opens her suite of poems, which are all about atomic warfare and the dropping of the bomb. And she asks us to calculate whether we peacemakers shall inherit or destroy this blessed earth. 
she concludes her poem by saying, it's time. It's time we said together, yes to life. To ashes, simply no. The hearts of Christians and, and good people everywhere long for the time prophesied by Isaiah when the children of God will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. So this year's Come Follow Me readings focused almost exclusively on war. These weren't just mere skirmishes that are recorded in these chapters. These were terrible, bloody battles. The massive conflicts that resulted in untold death and suffering and destruction. The number of their dead was not numbered because of the greatness of their number. Alma 44, 21. So if the purpose of the gospel, if the purpose of the church, if the purpose of the world, if the purpose of this Come Follow Me program that we've been following is to bring us to Christ, the Prince of Peace, why should we bother to learn war by reading Alma's war chapters? Why not just skip over them and get to the good stuff? You know, the Savior is easy to find in most of the Book of Mormon. The war chapters make it harder. For many people, they even act as a stumbling block in the Book of Mormon's witness of Christ. The Civil War General William T. Sherman said famously that war is hell. I think he was maybe more right than even he knew. Because what is hell? Hell is the absence of divine light and love. In Alma 43 to 52, our chapters for today, Jesus, the source of light and love, is almost entirely absent. So these chapters force us to work harder to find light and love. The fruit of the tree of life, the love of God, isn't just hanging right in front of us, easy picking, so to speak. The war chapters force us to become better readers of scripture in order to find Christ where he is seemingly missing. So really what my lesson about is about today is about reading scripture. And so what I want to do is talk about four different approaches or four different ways that we can read these chapters, Alma 43 through 52. And I'll go through each of these uh, over the course of the lesson. So we can read these chapters simply as kind of cool, action-packed stories with, with action heroes. We can read them allegorically as instructions, spiritual instructions in our own personal battle against evil. We can read them as being instructive uh, about conflict and violence, the dynamics and nature of conflict and violence. And we can read them as part of the Book of Mormon's larger narrative, which I believe teaches the futility of violence. It does not celebrate it. Now, sometimes, especially if we're just focusing in on these chapters, it requires a close reading, even reading against the grain reading against the grain of the narrator, Mormon, who's doing a lot of the, the work here. But we also see in these chapters, and I'll talk about this at the end, the development of the prophet Mormon as a narrator, which then leaves us, I think, 
with a surprise in terms of who the real heroes of the story are. In fact, the real heroes don't even appear in the story. So I will tantalize you with that. All right, so first of all, okay, we need to get our bearings. These are, now we're not gonna talk about Alma 43 to 63 today. Ne next week, we'll, we'll take the second half of these and I look forward to, to that lesson. Um, but uh, but as, as a whole, we oftentimes call Alma 43 to 63 the, the war chapters. Now these are long and often confusing chapters. So it helps to do a few things to, to maybe get our bearings. And of course, many of you are expert and, and veteran readers of scripture, but, but still it's, it's helpful to, to be reminded of some of these things. So these, these 20 or 21 chapters, they're not the product just of one author, but multiple authors, four in fact. So Alma is the primary record keeper at the beginning, but then he hands off the plates to his son Helaman, who then upon his death hands the plates uh, probably before his death, I would guess, uh, to, to his brother Shiblon. Uh, and all along, of course, we get their records and their narratives refracted through Mormon's editing. So we actually, this, these, these chapters are the products of multiple authors. Also, we typically think, and especially as we plow through these chapters, it just seems like battle after battle after battle, which it is. But in fact, there are three different wars, three discrete wars that are documented just in, our, in, in, in these uh, sets of, of chapters. Um, and I use the names here. These are not the names of the, of the conflicts that are given in the text. It doesn't name them as such. So I'm using the names given by Grant Hardy. Um, and I'd highly recommend uh, to all of you uh, here, the, the Maxwell Institute uh, study edition of the Book of Mormon, which is edited by Grant Hardy, which, which is terrific. But uh, in that, he makes it very clear. He shows that there are actually three different wars that he calls the Zoramite War that takes place about 74 years before the coming of Christ. That's in chapters uh, 43 and 44. And then we get what he calls the first Amalekite war in chapters 46 to 49. Uh, and then if you, there are a few years of peace, and then we get the second Amalekite war in chapters 51 through 62, okay? And the chronology here is, is uneven. One year, uh, actually the year 73 years before the coming of Christ, receives several chapters of narrative and actually, it's the most frequently referenced chapter, or most frequent, frequently referenced year in the entire Book of Mormon, uh, in, in the entire Nephite Chronicle, whereas some years are passed over in just a single verse. So, so the, the chronology here is confusing, as is typical in much of the Book of Mormon. Also, there are so many names and places and so forth that can easy, it can be really easy to get lost. Um, so I think it's helpful to have handy when you're reading these chapters a map. Now, um, these are not maps that conform, as far as we know, to any modern geography, and the church itself is agnostic uh, about this, um, although some members of the church are not. They have rather strong convictions. But rather, th these maps that have been created, the one on, on the left on your screen, uh, you can find at uh, BYU's Book of Mormon site, uh, bom.byu.edu. The one on the right is based off of the, the research of John Sorensen, who's probably done more research on this than anybody and developed these maps. And you can find a, a similar version of that in an appendix of, of the Maxwell Institute Study Edition. So these are about the internal geography of the Book of Mormon. Again, not making any claims about how that corresponds to anything in the, in the world we know now. Now, so these maps are really helpful to get a sense of where these armies are going and, and all that kind of stuff. But they also sometimes raise some interesting questions. 
So I was struck upon reading the chapters this time about a, a, a little fact that I, I think I'd, I, maybe I had noticed but not fully appreciated before. So in chapter 50 of, of Alma, it documents the story of the rebellion of the people of Morianton. Now, if you look on the map, and I know you probably have to squint, Morianton is kind of on the eastern side. It's near the, 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 the eastern sea. Um, and uh, what happens is the Morianton is people essentially want to break off from the Nephites and are not happy with Nephite le leadership, and, and they want to, to flee. Now, a few chapters earlier, we get the story of Amalickiah leading a bunch of Nephite dissenters and going southward down to, uh, to join the Lamanites. And then we know how Amalickiah, you know, through his steaming, becomes the king of, of the Lamanites. But in Alma chapter 50, Morianton and his people, it says that they want to flee north not south. So I'd always thought, or for a long time, I thought Morianton's people, they're just like Amalickiah. They want to flee south. They want to join the Lamanites, and they want to fight against the Nephites in that way. They're traitors. You know, they're seceders, just like uh, Amalickiah. No, that they might be seceders, but they don't want to join forces with the Lamanites. They want to go north to the land of desolation, where there aren't any Nephites or Lamanites, and they want to kind of be on their own. They want to essentially establish their own kingdom. But Moroni treats them essentially the same as he treats anybody else who wants to secede to the Lamanites. He stops them. Um, he, he fights against them. He kills many of them. And for me, actually, this fact that they were going north rather than going south, once again, raised question about Moroni, in, in my mind, about Moroni's leadership. Yeah, it's a problem that these people, you know, want to take off and I guess weaken the, the Nephite forces and weaken the Nephite nation, but they're not going to join forces with the Lamanites. They're just going off on their own. Um, and so, so that one little fact that, that, that I, I appreciated more once I looked at the map and thought about the, the, the spatial relationships here helped me think about um, Moroni's leadership and, and what's really going on here and some of the, the dynamics of, of war. Okay, so, so let me move on. Um, we could talk about all this kind of stuff a, a lot, but in the interest of time, I want to get through all of this uh, in less than an hour. Okay, so these four different approaches of how do, we, how do we read these stories. So the first approach is we can read these chapters just as, quote unquote, kind of cool stories with a bunch of action heroes, right? So we all know the, the artwork of the sort of a muscle-bound Captain Moroni. Uh, apparently, there's comic books. I haven't read them that feature T. Ancom. You can go to DeseretBook.com and buy your action figures of Moroni and T. Ancom. Now, to be fair to Deseret Book, they also have action figures of like Abinadi and other, you know, unarmed figures. So I, I didn't grow up playing with like Book of Mormon action figures. Maybe you all did. Um, but anyway, so, so you know, th this is one way to, to look at these chapters and maybe even the most common way that a lot of people read these chapters. I mean, and if you're interested in war, and if you're interested in those kinds of stories, there's a lot going on here. You've got massive battles. You've got scalping. You've got Tiancom sneaking into Amalekai's camp and killing him with a javelin. You've got all kinds of strategies. You've got a classic good guy versus bad guy story. This is all the kind of stuff that, that you can totally fanboy over, okay? And I do think it's mostly fanboys, not fangirls. Uh, in, in, in these chapters. And it seems that even Mormon is doing some fanboying with Captain Moroni. And I'll, he seems to name his own son after him. 
Um, and so I'm going to talk a little bit later about Mormon's ode to Captain Moroni and, and how I make sense of that. But th there's, there's a lot of fanboying going on here, or a lot of people read it that way. Now, look, I think whatever it takes to get people into scripture is great. So, so if this is what it takes to get a 15-year-old boy, you know, reading scripture, okay, great. He opens the book, you know, maybe it's the Alma War chapters and the Song of Solomon that gets 15-year-old boys to, to, to open scripture. Okay, fine, whatever. Then maybe they, they go on from there. But the word of God is not given to us to entertain us, let alone to titillate us. And so this reading, when we treat these chapters as an action story, as a Quentin Tarantino movie, then I think we are doing a disservice to the scripture, we're doing a disservice to the gospel. This reading, this kind of action hero reading, leaves many readers cold, and I think mostly women, as, as, I've, as I've spoken to people. And as I said, this can be a, a real stumbling block in people's search for Christ in the Book of Mormon, because fairly, they look at these chapters and they say, where is Jesus? I see a lot of death and destruction. I see a lot of men flexing muscles, but I'm not sure I see Jesus. The thing that we have to remember is that even these action heroes, or maybe especially these heroes, Captain Moroni and others, did not delight in bloodshed. Chapter 48, verse 11. So we shouldn't either. If you want wanton violence and gratuitous killing, go watch a Tarantino movie. God did not preserve the scriptures to do, for you to delight in the killing of his children, Lamanite, Nephite, Jaredite, or otherwise. God did not preserve the record of the Nephites for you to delight in violence. So I'm not sure this is the best reading of this text. A far better reading, I think, is to think about what this text, what these chapters have to teach us in our own personal spiritual warfare. We're all engaged in the battle of good versus evil in some ways. Some of us see that in black and white, some of us see shades of gray, but we're all, we know that there's evil out there. And so we're all engaged in this battle. So I have a question for you, and I'm, I, I'll ask this question, then I'll say a little bit more so you have time to kind of formulate some thoughts, and then we'll open it up, and, and I'll have either Rebecca or Christian read some of your comments. So as you've read these chapters over the years, what personal spiritual lessons have you learned from your reading of the war chapters? I'd be really interested in, in, in people's thoughts and experiences. So I, a really helpful way for, for me to approach these chapters, and, and this began a long time ago when I, when I, I came across a, a, an Ensign article from January 1992 by Kathleen McConkie called Defending Against Evil. And she talked about how she read these scriptures uh, with her family, and she, she concluded her article by saying, if I am to successfully defend my family in the great war with evil, I want to take advantage of every word of counsel from the Lord's combat manual, quote unquote, for the latter days, the Book of Mormon. And so she talked about, and this helped me, you know, as, as I read the chapters then, I started to see lessons, ways that we could apply some of these particular scriptures about, you know, real life battles and the ways that we could apply them into the spiritual battles of good versus evil. And, and I just have some examples here, uh, you know, as, as we see 
uh, Captain Moroni arming his his people, you know, with swords and shields and, and bucklers and all those kinds of things. It certainly reminded me of, of the Pauline injunction to put on the whole armor of God. You remember when Captain Moroni goes to, to the prophet Alma to, to ask, for, you know, where did Amalekiah's army go? And so living prophets provide us with insight about the enemy. One thing, and I want to uh, show this uh, little video clip. You know, one thing that, um, that Moroni did is that he reminded the people of what their cause was and why they were fighting. And I think that's a really important question for us to ask ourselves. What would we fight for? What, you know, whether violently or, or nonviolently, what is worth fighting for? And so uh, my alma mater, Notre Dame, I, I think as a graduate, I I'm contractually obligated to, to plug Notre Dame at every possible uh, uh, moment. Uh, but they've put together this terrific video series that's broadcast during the, the home football games on, on NBC. And they've been doing this for years. And the whole series is called, What Would You Fight For? And, and then they, they profile various uh, researchers or students at Notre Dame who are doing things to, to change the world, right? They're fighting, you know, the, the Notre Dame, their, their mascot is the fighting Irish. So, so what would you fight for? So I, I wanna play this uh, little video, short little video about one of my, um, he became a, a fellow student and a good friend there at Notre Dame, a guy named Rashid Omar. Um, and this, is, this is, is an amazing story. All right, so let me, um, Okay, and again, somebody interrupt me if this is not working. My ancestors were brought here as slaves, and I grew up under apartheid where the color of one's skin still determined the value of one's Patrick, life. we don't see the video. We hear it, but don't see it. Okay, let me try, let's see, new share. Can you see it now? Okay, let's start over. My ancestors were brought here as slaves, and I grew up under apartheid where the color of one's skin still determined the value of one's life. I spoke out against it and was thrown in jail. In prison, there was people of different religious backgrounds, Christians, Muslims, Jews, and during this very difficult times when we were being tortured, we used to share with each other prayers. For me, that was a sign that God's spirit dwells in all of us. And it made me believe that one of the ways of fighting apart, it was not merely to cross cultural divides, but also religious divides. Patrick, I think you need to click start on the video. It's not. Is it not working? It's not. The video is not moving. Sound only. All right. I had been playing the, uh, the video on my screen and it said I was screen sharing. Anyway, we'll we'll just uh, it goes on for another minute, but I'll we'll we'll just stop that rather than messing with the technology. Um, 
But anyway, you, you get the sense of that, and you can go on and find it on YouTube yourself. But but the sense of, of here's this guy Rashid Omar. This the, he's a, a Muslim imam, and he uh, he joins the fight against apartheid. So it's this question of what would you fight for? For him, he would put everything on the line to fight for justice, to fight for peace uh, among the diverse peoples of South Africa. And so I, th I think that's a question that, that each of us uh, can, can ask ourselves is what would you fight for? All right, so let me go back to, to the PowerPoint here. Okay, and so you can go through and, and see here um, the, uh, you know, a, a number of, of other th insights that I've come up with just by reading these chapters in terms of ways that we can personally apply some of the specific kind of, you know, military narratives that we find in these chapters and, and the ways that we can apply them to, to our lives uh, in, in a spiritual uh, sense. And so this, these are just a few examples that I've come up with, but, but I want to open it up now. Uh, maybe a few people have, um, have commented uh, in terms of lessons that they've pulled from these chapters. So Rebecca or Christian, does one of you want to share some of those? Yeah, so so a lot of folks um, have some resentment that there's so much war and bloodshed and that so much time is spent on war um, and, and have wanted back the stories of the mothers, for instance. Um, there are some who see lessons about agency and, and you know, how we make choices and the ability to make choices and what choices lead to. Uh, we have folks who are talking about uh, these scriptures as a cautionary tale, a lesson in don't act in anger, you'll end up like Tiancum dying tragically. <laughs> um, others are wondering if Moroni actually did delight in the shedding of blood and what is the lesson then for that? Um, others are saying that there are worth, there are things that are worth fighting for. Um, Chris, you want to jump in, see anything else? I, I think the idea of fighting or, or of dealing with anger is one that's uh, something to bring forward uh, that, uh, that we can take from this uh, lessons or thinking about our, ourselves dealing with, with anger and with evil that we see in our uh, in our lives and around us. Um, uh, some are saying looking... they skip them, or their, their mothers just skip them. And I think that you're right in recognizing um, how especially painful and disorienting these scriptures can be for, for women and for, for mothers in particular, perhaps. Yeah, I'm, I'm intrigued by the idea also playing out here, at least in one or two comments of the, that the, that the authors, that the writers um, may be people who um, I, uh, delight in more, I, who actually do appreciate this and, and that we ought to, or, or maybe should be aware of that as we read. Yeah, those are, those are great comments. I'm going to talk a little bit more about Mormon a little bit uh, towards the end of the lesson and his role as, as, a, as a narrator here and some development that I see uh, in Mormon. Um, 
Those are all great comments. And yeah, and dealing with anger. And, and I love the way that, yeah, if, if we're going to wrestle with these chapters and look, if people want to skip them, skip over them, fine, right? But if we're going to read them, like, what do they have to tell us, right? Um, because I don't think they're, they're, they're not just meant to be historical, right? In, in the sense of like, read about these battles, you know, from, from 2000 years ago, uh, what, regardless of, of, of what, what you think about the, the Book of Mormon and historicity. There's got to be more to it. There's got to be more to, to it. And, and so the, the work that we put in to try and uh, to, to make sense of these chapters and incorporate them in our discipleship. Um, but, but as I said earlier in the lesson, it's hard work because it isn't easy. It's not just laid, given to us kind of on a platter in terms of, of uh, how we make sense of these. Good. Anything else before I, I keep going, Rebecca or Chris? No, so I think an observation that in some ways we see perhaps an, an adolescent vision of the world and, and it reflected here that we're living in a world that's marked by patriarchy and violence and these chapters reflect that and then what is our response to that? What do we, what do, we do with that? I'm also, I've also been reflecting on you know, some of your ideas on spiritual meanings we can take out of, out of these chapters, this idea of putting on the whole armor of God or what is worth fighting for. And this is, those kind of principles are things that I see, especially my kids as they go through primary, the teachers and leaders picking up on those and, and, and getting kids to have a sense that, you know, what's the armor of God? What are you putting on? But it has always struck me that that sets uh, our kids up to approach the world in this kind of us versus them, you know, battle, confrontation, conflictual type of way that doesn't fit with what I like to see as, as the message of Christ, that kind of light and love. And so I think you're right that, it, that these chapters, you know, I want there to be something more <laughs> that we can get. <laughs> and, and not, like put on the armor, be tough. Like, yeah, yeah, Patrick, there's another comment that uh, the word jihad, which I, I'm going to wrap into a couple of thoughts that there's a long history in religious history of, you see it in the Crusades, you see it in talk about jihad, of a religious motivation for war, of a protecting the faith or campaigning on behalf of a religion. And that's something, um, we shouldn't ignore the fact that there is that history and there are those thoughts and there have been those teachings. Yeah, that's really important. And I, I teach a whole course here at Utah State called Religion, Violence, and Peace, where, where we cover that across the, the, the world's religious traditions. Um, and uh, I, I did a master's degree at, at Notre Dame and the Kroc Institute on, on, in peace studies, where I really focused on religion and, and peace building. So th those are great comments. And actually, some of what I'm going to uh, say next may, may address some of that. On, on jihad, it is important to note that actually the word itself just means struggle. Um, and so, uh, so Muslims talk about the greater jihad and the lesser jihad. The greater jihad is the struggle in yourself. It, it, is, is, it is the struggle for self-mastery. It is the struggle to, to worship properly, the struggle to put aside pride. Um, we, in Mormon language, we would say the struggle against the natural man. So, the, so Muslims would say that's the greater jihad. 
and, and they would say only on very rare occasions then do you engage in the lesser jihad, which would be uh, some kind of violent defense of, of the faith. Um, so in, anyway, uh, we don't want to get too distracted there. We, uh, like I said, I have a whole semester's worth of material on, on this stuff. So, so let, me, let me keep going and please keep the comments coming in. There will be time at the end where we can talk more about, quest about your, your insights and questions. So let me go back to, um, to my PowerPoint here and we'll, we'll uh, keep going. Okay, so I think a, uh, a third way that we can read these chapters is that we can read them for lessons about the dynamics of conflict and violence. All of us in our lives deal with conflict. Conflict is baked into uh, creation. It's baked into human existence. I, I happen to think uh, you know, conflict itself is neither positive nor negative. Um, there's actually a lot of positive aspects of conflict, the difference between day and night or male and female and, and so forth. So, these could, so the question for us is how we engage conflict constructively. And so these lessons, because the Book of Mormon throughout, uh, I think President Benson was really good to, to talk about how the Book of Mormon uh, was given to us as a testimony of Jesus Christ, as a witness of Jesus Christ, but also as a witness and a warning against the ways that evil operated in the world. And so I think one way that we can read these chapters is to help reveal the nature of conflict, reveal the nature of violence, how it works, the mechanics of it, so therefore we can learn and be more wise. All right? And so, so I, I want to go through some characteristics of conflict that we see in these chapters. And again, the, this conflict, sometimes it's interpersonal, sometimes it's international, but many of these characteristics uh, often pop up in conflict. One of the main things that fuels conflict are dueling narratives. And we see this throughout these chapters in terms of the ways that Nephites and Lamanites justify their warfare. For Nephites, we're very familiar with the Nephite justification of warfare, and it's typically around self-defense, and it's defense of religion and defense of liberty, okay, along with families and, and, and those kinds. Of, so it's very much a, they are the aggressors, we are here defending truth, justice, and the Nephite way, right? Now that all, it, it sounds great. And actually, <laughs> Mormon goes to great pains to emphasize the rightness of the Nephite cause. But you know what? The Lamanites have their narrative too. And actually, the, the, I think the best article about this, Richard Bushman wrote an article years ago called The Lamanite View of the Book of Mormon. But we can see in these chapters, both in chapter 44 and then even more so in, in, in next week's reading, chapter 54, the, the Lamanites have their own story too. And it's a story of long-standing grievance that the Nephites took what was rightfully theirs. And so in conflict, both parties typically choose a narrative. They construct a narrative, they choose a narrative, they promote a narrative that puts themselves in the best possible light and their enemies in the worst possible light. Conflict is so much about narrative. We also see in these chapters, they reveal that domestic disputes, civil wars, the wars that are fought among people who are closest, close cousins, family members, relatives, ideological partners, they are the nastiest wars. So think about it, the Zoramite War that we read about in chapters 43 and 44, where does it take place? It takes place near the land of Jershon. What is the land of Jershon? That's where the anti-Nephi Lehi's have settled. The Lamanites hate 
the anti-Nephi Lehi's more than anything, even more than the Nephites, because they're traitors in the Lamanite view. And who leads the Lamanite forces? It's Amalekites and Zoramites, Nephite dissenters, who hate the Nephites more than anything. They have personal grudges. So these civil wars, these domestic disputes, the, that's why family disputes are the nastiest disputes of all. That's why civil wars are the bloodiest wars of all, because people are so close. It feeds the conflict in a particularly nasty way. We also see in this chapter the role of what one scholar, Stanley Tambaya, calls violence engineers. You know, the fact is that most people don't fight wars. Most people just want to get along, right? Most people don't want to send their children off to war or participate in war or, or be the recipients of war. And so more often than not, violence happens because certain people engineer it. It is in the interest of some people to go to war, whether for power, for profit, uh, for grievances, for various kinds of ways. And so we see in these chapters, it's actually really interesting. Even though it's a Nephite record, we see, and, and the, the typical Nephite stereotype is that the Lamanites are horribly violent. They're bloodthirsty. They can't wait to kill the Nephites. We see at least twice in these chapters that the Lamanites, the rank and file, they do not want to go to war. Most people don't want to. Most people want to avoid conflict in their lives. What, and, and whether it's because you know, of previous losses or they're scared or, or cowardice or just they're commonsensical or because they're charitable, there's a lot of reasons why people want to avoid war. But the Lamanites, the rank and file, don't want to go to war. They have to be stirred up. This is a common refrain that we see in war and violence. So beware of anyone in the stirring up business. I recently read a really great profile of Colin Powell, uh, who of course was Secretary of State and was instrumental in leading our country into the war in Iraq, the second war in Iraq. And this, this showed how Powell was misled. In some ways, he admits he allowed himself to be misled. But there were violence engineers in our country who wanted to go to war, and they shaped the information and narrative so that we would. So beware of anyone in the stirring up business. Violence oftentimes begins with ideas. It begins with language, which, as these verses say, hardens hearts, blinds minds, and stirs people up to anger, which is exactly the same set tactics that Satan uses in 2 Nephi 28. Also, we see here that violence begets violence. This is actually one of the great lessons of the Book of Mormon in general. This is the dynamic of the whole Book of Mormon, the, in which the downward cycle of violence leads to not one, but two civilizational holocausts. In, this, in these chapters, it takes place in a particularly interesting way, in, in a narrative that I think we, we oftentimes miss. So in chapter 50, of the Book of Mormon, Moroni's armies come into some territories near the East Sea, and it says they drive out the Lamanites who live there. Note that these are not part of Amalekiah's army. These are Lamanites who lived there. These are their homes. These are not invaders. And Moroni takes his armies in and displaces these people who have lived there, presumably for generations, and he gets rid of them sends them away. And then what does he do? He brings Nephites in to settle in the exact places where the Lamanites lived. And they create a whole bunch of new cities named after these Nephite leaders, including Moroni. 
And so these new settlements on top of where the displaced Lamanites used to live. In a lot of places, we call this settler colonialism. Those of us who live in Utah or practically anywhere in the United States, really anywhere in the United States, this is a familiar pattern to us, okay? In fact, even it talks about, when it talks about the land, it refers to it as the land of the Nephites possession, not inheritance. So in the next chapter, in chapter 51, when the second Amalekiahite war begins, when the violence engineers begin to do their work among the Lamanites, where does that next war start? It starts exactly in those places that the Nephites had displaced the Lamanites. No doubt it was easy for the violence engineers among the Lamanites to stir up a sense of grievance. The Nephites have driven you out of your homes, out of the lands of your inheritance, out of the places where you, your parents, your grandparents have lived. So let's go get the land back. This is the dynamic of violence. We also see in these chapters that violence doesn't just stay in the quote-unquote proper channels. We like to think that we can channel violence, that we can, that we can just keep it in certain areas in our society, that just the army can do it or just the police can do it, you know, the people who, who, who have the right to do it. But we see in these chapters that violence doesn't do that. Violence will spill out of its proper channels. We see this in chapter 50 with Maury Anton's domestic violence against one of his servants, one of his female servants. And she runs off and then, and then shares Morianton's plans and, th and that furthers the, the plot. But we see this oftentimes. We see this, there was a 2013 report to the Veterans Administration that talked about how intimate partner violence is a particular problem among active members of the military and veterans. Now, of course, I do not want to besmirch the character of everyone who serves in the military, far from it. Most people who do, do not participate in domestic violence uh, or intimate partner violence. Uh, but this report in 2013 showed that intimate partner violence among active duty service members, that 22% of active duty service members had perpetrated intimate partner violence in the past 12 months. So nearly a quarter of all members of the American Armed Forces had then perpetrated domestic violence, uh, intimate partner violence during the previous year. Violence doesn't stay in its proper channels. And finally, we say we desire peace, but we dwell on conflict and violence. This is certainly the narrative dynamic here. That there, there are years of peace here, Mormon just skips over them. In fact, there's, there's two years of peace that get literally like half of a verse or barely a mention in these things, uh, in, in these narratives, whereas year 73 uh, before Christ uh, received several chapters. And so we say we love peace, but, but are we bored by it? Are we more interested in violent movies, violent books, violent stories, because there, that's where the action is? In my own profession, as a professional historian, historians say conflict drives history. That when people are getting along, that's not very interesting. Well, maybe we need to flip it. And this is a dynamic within the broader Book of Mormon too. Fourth Nephi is so short. Right? I would love to know more of like what was going on in those 200 years. How did people get along? No, instead we get 20 chapters of war and one chapter of Zion. What does that say about us as narrators, as readers, as tellers of stories? 
So one of the things we have to recognize, I'm going to go quickly here, um, is that these chapters help us to think about descriptive versus prescriptive readings of scripture. Not everything in scripture is meant as an example for us. Oftentimes the scriptures simply describe things the way they are and then lead us and then leave us to make judgments about whether or not what we think about those things. Sometimes uh, scripture includes prescriptive language in terms of what we should do, thou shalt, thou shalt not, but oftentimes scripture is descriptive and then we have to make judgment calls. Now there is some prescriptive language in these chapters about the use of violence. And it raises the question about whether these chapters give us a license to kill, at least in self-defense. So in chapter 43, verses 46 and 47, it offers two commands, apparently revelations, although these revelations are not recorded anywhere else in scripture, they're of unknown provenance, but they're recorded here, in which it says, the Lord had said unto them and also unto their fathers, that inasmuch as ye are not guilty of the first offense, neither the second, ye shall not suffer yourself to be slain by the hands of your enemies. Okay, this seems like a, a, a pretty good justification for self-defense, but let's look at it more carefully. First of all, it's very clear that you have to not be guilty of the first or second offense. This is reminiscent of the language in Doctrine and Covenants 98. I don't, I don't have time to get into the specifics here, okay? But you cannot be guilty of the first or second offense. You cannot use violence preemptively or even immediately reactively. Think about the Sermon on the Mount think about section 98. It resonates with this. But then it does say, you shall not suffer yourself to be slain by the hands of your enemies. Keep in mind, this is a negative command. It does not say, okay, now go ahead and kill your enemies. It's also a little bit confusing, this idea, hey, don't let yourself be killed. Don't let yourself, you know, be slain by the hands of your enemies. Well, what would Jesus say about that? or Paul, or Abinadi, or the anti-Nephi-Lehi's, or Joseph Smith, or any number of the host of other martyrs who did suffer themselves to be slain by the hands of their enemies. Were they in violation of this commandment? Keep in mind there is no express provision here to slay your enemies, which leads to the second command. And again, the Lord has said that ye shall defend your families even unto bloodshed. This seems like and is often quoted as the most straightforward common sense statement in favor of violent self-defense. But keep in mind, it does not say to defend yourself. This is not a stand your ground verse. It only talks about defending innocent others who are in your care. Furthermore, this phrase, even unto bloodshed, what does it mean? Well, it might mean using violence to stop aggressors, but whose blood is it? Maybe it's your blood that you're supposed to shed, that you are willing to defend your families even to the shedding of your own blood. Nonviolence as practiced by Gandhi, by King, John Lewis, who just passed away, doesn't guarantee that no, violent, that no blood will be shed. It only says that I will not shed your blood. I am willing to shed my own blood before I will shed the blood of another. Remember what Jesus said, greater love is no man, no one than this, to lay down one's life for one's friends. 
The anti-Nephi-Lehites defended their families. The civil rights activists defended their families. Gandhi and his movement in India defended their families, even unto bloodshed, but they did it nonviolently. Finally, I wanna spend a couple minutes here and then I'll end. It's always a little dangerous to take any scripture or any chunk of scripture out of its broader context. It's more important and better to, to put scripture in the context of the whole. How does it fit into the larger narrative? And this is this kind of narrative analysis, I give a huge nod to Grant Hardy, to Chris Thomas, and other people who have, have shown us how to do this with, with the Book of Mormon. Now, Alma's record, remember, uh, chapters 45 through 62 are written by Helaman. So Alma's record is chapters 1 through 44 of the Book of Alma. It begins and ends with violence. So now let's think about this as a narrative. And Maxine Hanks did this last week, too, in, in her lesson, which was great. Let's think about this as a narrative, okay? And actually invites us to do this. There's lots of clues in here. For instance, there's a kind of parallel construction at the beginning and end of Alma's narrative in which you have conflict, you have battles. Uh, with Nephite dissenters that result into massive death and destruction and unnumbered bodies being dumped into the river Sidon. Okay, so there are a lot of things that invite us to, to, to read this as a kind of parallel construction. Okay, so, so what? Let me suggest what I see as the structure of Alma's record, which is a series of parallel or mirrored constructions. And then think of this as three concentric rings, the outer ring of which with parallels both at the beginning and end of Alma's record shows the rejection of God that leads to contention. So this would be chapters one through four and then 43 and 44. So this brackets the extreme ends of the outside ring of Alma's narrative. If we move a little bit further in, the next ring in, we have these long and beautiful narratives about the preaching of the word of God. This is Alma's mission. This is uh, Ammon's mission and, and the other sons of Mosiah. And then this is Alma and, Alma and his sons as they go to the Zoramites. And then, and, then, and then as Alma preaches to his sons, preaches the doctrine of Christ. So we see the preaching of the word of God. What does it lead to? Conversion. But then at the heart of the book of Alma, these chapters right in the center, we see the fruits of conversion that lead to sanctification and true life in Christ. And who do we find at the center of the narrative? It's not Captain Moroni, it's the anti-Nephi-Lehi's. In fact, in Mormon's edit of Alma's 44 chapters, the anti-Nephi-Lehi's are right smack dab in the middle, chapters 17 through 27. This is true of the larger Book of Mormon as well, 531 pages in the modern edition, the story of the anti-Nephi-Lehi's right smack in the middle. Word count, same thing. The anti-Nephi-Lehi's are right smack in the middle. Now, this might only be coincidence. I don't suggest that you can open any book, look at what's right in the middle, and that tells you everything you need to know about the book. So maybe it's coincidence. Maybe it's just, it just happened to be that the anti-Nephi-Lehi's are right smack in the middle of Alma's account and the entire Book of Mormon. But I do think it means something for us to think about the anti-Nephi-Lehi's in relation to the war chapters. At the very least, we are introduced first 
to the anti-Nephi-Lehi. So if we're reading the Book of Mormon in a linear fashion, we are first introduced to the anti-Nephi-Lehi's. We see that they are both a righteous and effective example of how to deal in the face of violent aggression if you are a disciple of Christ. And so the reader is invited to evaluate everything that comes later through what they have just learned from the example of the anti-Nephi-Lehi's. So for instance, when we read in chapter 48, verse 24, that the Nephites could not suffer to lay down their lives, that their wives and their children should be massacred, that seems entirely commonsensical. That we should not suffer ourselves to be massacred, we should not suffer our wives and children to be massacred. But as a reader, we know that just a few chapters earlier, this is what the anti-Nephi-Lehi said and did. If our brethren destroy us, behold, we shall go to our God and be saved. Rather than shed the blood of their brethren, they would give up their own lives. Now, when the people saw that they were coming, that the Lamanite aggressors were coming against them, they went out to meet them and prostrated themselves. They laid down before them to the earth and began to call on the name of the Lord. The artwork here in the background, by the way, is Minerva Teichert, her beautiful painting called Christian Converts. So knowing something about the anti-Nephi-Lehi's, as readers, we should therefore read the actions of the Nephites during the later wars as a choice, not an inevitability. They may or may not be able to choose whether aggression comes their way, but they can choose how to respond. And so we see here, I think, Mormon's development as a narrator. I think as if we think that he is editing these records and compiling these records in some kind of linear fashion, I think he's a little confused by the anti-Nephi-Lehi's. I think he, 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 he is compelled by their righteousness, by their Christian witness, but he's a warrior himself. He's not quite sure what to make of these strange pacifists, right? And so what he does is he moves on and he narrates these Nephite-Lamanite wars in a very straightforward way. It's a military chronicle. It's a very secular chronicle. God is almost absent from these chapters despite the fact that they are narrated by a prophet of God. But see, but then he goes on, and he's going to narrate later on, he's going to compile the records of 3rd Nephi, of Jesus teaching the sermon at the temple, and teaching the hard sayings of turning the other cheek, and blessed are the peacemakers. And then he's going to see how that plays out in 4th Nephi, that following the teachings of Jesus leads to a societal transformation that results in 200 years of Zion. And then he sees it, it fall apart. And he sees the fruits of violence once again come back to the Nephites. And he sees his people destroyed before his very eyes. And so as he reflects back on this record, what he has learned and what he has seen, he leaves a final testimony. And he tells us to believe in Jesus. And then he says in verse 4 of Mormon 7, Know ye that ye must lay down your weapons of war, and delight no more in the shedding of blood, and take them not again, save it be that God shall command you. At the end of his life, when he has only a few words, his final testimony, his last lecture, who 
what image is conjured in his mind? Is it Moroni? Is it Tiancum? No, it's the anti-Nephi-Lehites. And so our challenge as readers is to discover or recover the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Prince of Peace, in the war chapters. If we want peace and love and light, we need to know where to find it. Recall what Alma said earlier, or the record in Alma, the preaching of the word had a great tendency to lead the people to do that which was just, yea, it had a more powerful effect upon the minds of the people than the sword or anything else. So how do we make sense of Mormon's ode to Moroni, where the total fanboy passage, if everybody was like Moroni, the gates of hell would be shaken. I have no doubt that Moroni was a good and stalwart and courageous man. We see him praying, we see him citing scripture, we see him turning to the prophet for advice, but he was a man of war. And Mormon compares him in this ode, this rapturous ode. He says he was a man like unto Ammon and the other sons of Mosiah, yea, and also Alma and his sons, for they were all men of God. Now, maybe, as Grant Hardy says, he says, maybe God has eclectic tastes. He probably does. He, 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 you know. But Captain Moroni is not like Ammon. He's not like the sons of Mosiah. He is not like Alma and his sons, especially not in the way that they related to their enemies and to the Lamanites. They went to them with the word, not the sword. And what are the fruits of Moroni's labors. Again, stories of courage and conviction and defense, but also we see the fruits of death and destruction. What are the fruits of the preaching of the word? Well, a generation later, two missionaries, Nephi and Lehi, not to spoil the story coming up, but two missionaries go to the Lamanites, two missionaries. And the more part of the Lamanites were convinced, and as many as were convinced did lay down their weapons of war and also their hatred and the traditions of their fathers. And it came to pass that they did yield up unto the Nephites the lands of their possession. The Nephites gained more politically through the work of two humble missionaries preaching Christ than all of Moroni's armies. So we don't read the war chapters alone. We don't read the war chapters as the definitive statement on how disciples of Christ relate to violence. We have to read the war chapters through the gospel of Jesus Christ, not vice versa. They don't stand alone. They are part of a larger narrative about the fallenness of humanity, and its redemption through the grace of the suffering servant, the Prince of Peace, Jesus Christ. So our challenge is to read the war chapters through the lens of the gospel of Jesus Christ, not vice versa. Where can we turn for peace? He, only one. I say that in the name of Jesus Christ, amen. Amen. Thank you, Patrick. Um, 
There's been a great discussion going on chat. I think I'll just, uh, Chris and I will bring in a few comments uh, for discussion that, um, that I think fit where, a lot of it fits where you've ended up. Um, we're grateful a lot of folks have commented on uh, this perspective and, and looking at the anti-Nephi-Lehi's uh, uh, um, as kind of the midpoint uh, and an observation that the midpoint, um, if you're writing a book uh, in a novel or a film, often is the place where the context shifts and we come to see a clearer view of the endpoint. It sets that up and you've brought that out so beautifully in, in, in going back to how Mormon uh, then ends the book. And this is the, this is what's, you know, foremost in his mind is this uh, remarkable example of people who are pursuing peace and, um, and literally uh, you know, converting their hearts and their actions to Christ's message and what does that look like in their society. So folks are commenting about that and they're, and they're commenting about the human tendency to, to gain power over others, uh, to uh, move toward autocracy and, uh, and the ways that violence um, and contention is being stirred up today that uh, when you're talking about the, the, the kind of folks who are, you know, violence engineers, violence engineers, um, that that's all around us. So, so how can we kind of take the messages here and think about them in our own context, which might not be, which might not be about actual physical war or maybe, <laughs> uh, not. But, but, but about, um, you know, certainly all sorts of civil strife and, and contention um, in, in our, in our um, time today. So maybe. Yeah, great, great comments, yeah. great questions. I, I'm, you know, it's, um, if, if we're going to be Christians, if we're going to claim to be Christians, we have to look to Jesus for this, right? And this is why the Sermon on the Mount is so powerful, because it teaches us how to engage conflict creatively. Jesus doesn't say that his followers will avoid conflict. He doesn't say that his followers will avoid hard times. But Jesus teaches us through his teachings, through his life, through his death, to engage conflict constructively and creatively and lovingly. And there's a lot to say about this, but um, one thing I'd point everybody to is a new book by Chad Ford, who's a professor at BYU-Hawaii. He has a new book called Dangerous Love. And it's a terrific, for, me, for my money, it's the best one volume kind of treatment of how to engage conflict constructively, uh, especially in our personal lives. And for, as you can tell from the title, Dangerous Love, it is all about love. Um, and uh, uh, we have to engage conflict in love. Uh, that doesn't mean we run away from it. It, it doesn't necessarily, it doesn't mean that we fold. I think the great lesson of, of loving nonviolence from Gandhi, from King and the civil rights activists, from Jesus, from the anti-Nephi-Lehi's, is not that you run away from evil, not that you just fold, not that, not, that, that, not that you let it steamroll you. You resist it. You fight back. 
but you do so lovingly and you do so nonviolently. And there's a whole set of literatures and theories in terms of how you do that creatively. Look, in our society, we've spent way more time thinking about and 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 uh, about war, about how to fight war. We we have you know, uh, we expend literally billions of dollars in learning war. At the at the beginning of our country, Benjamin Rush, one of the founding fathers, suggested that that if we're going to have a Department of War, we should also have a Department of Peace. What would our country have looked like? What would our history have looked like if we had spent billions and billions of dollars researching? how to be more peaceful instead of how to fight wars more effectively. So it takes work. It's not easy because we've been hardwired and our culture gives us all these signals. But, but all I can tell you is, is that, that Jesus calls us to engage and he calls us to resist, but to do so lovingly, courageously, and nonviolently. Patrick, I, I appreciate the mentioned just now of it being difficult and the connection with the Sermon on the Mount is another way to, and, and your mention of the hard teachings. Yeah. Um, I, this, the comments have played this out in some ways that are, uh, that I'd like to reflect back in saying maybe the anti-Nephi-Lehi's were exceptional and not people from whom to take an example in a special circumstance or an exceptional case. Um, maybe if we lay down our swords, we are no longer able to defend our wives and children, using the phrase. Uh, playing out, it depends on how you read it, but playing out the fact that today, these are still hard lessons and we still all have to, at least at commenters, have to wrestle with those thoughts and the fact that that there are choices being made, choices that are not obvious. I think that's exactly right. I'm, I, yeah, I do not want to suggest this is simple or this is easy. Um, maybe the anti-Nephi-Lehi's are exceptional. Maybe Jesus is exceptional. Right? That was the argument. That's, that's, that's the logic of the entire just war theory. You know, uh, the earliest Christians for the first three centuries of Christianity, uh, the followers of Jesus were pacifists. Now you could say it was because they were a minority, because you know it was pragmatic, you know, not 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 to make waves. But but actually, they did make waves as being pacifists. They were criticized. It was one of the reasons that that the Roman pagans criticized them because they wouldn't fight for the state. They wouldn't fight for the emperor. They were pacifists. Now that all changed once their political situation changed and once, once Christianity became the religion of the empire. And then we began to see the development of what we call just war theory, beginning with Augustine. And his logic was very similar to this. He said, look, Jesus was exceptional. I, I grant everything that Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount. But that's too hard for most of us, right? And, and so he, he said, yes, the fundamental commandment is to love, and so one way that you show love is by defending the innocent if they're attacked. Now, even Augustine said, if you yourself are attacked, a, a, a Christian response means that you have to be willing to die rather than shed the blood of others. Okay, but he said, if there are innocent others being attacked, your wives, your children, and others, the law of love means you cannot stand by and watch that happen. In fact, he even went so far as to say, the law of love means that you should intercede and stop somebody an attacker who's about to kill, you are in your rights under the law of love to kill them first 
so that they don't do that heinous crime and send their soul to, to damnation, right? So out of love, you can commit violence. And that's been the basis of the just war theory, which has been the dominant view in Christianity for a millennia, millennia and a half. And then the radical reformers and others, the Anabaptists came along and said, wait a minute, maybe that's not what Jesus meant in the Sermon on the Mount. Maybe he actually meant for us to do what he said, no matter how hard it is. So th these are debates that faithful, good Christians have had for 2000 years. So I don't wanna suggest it's easy. I don't wanna suggest it's an open and shut case, but I do wanna suggest that there's a case that the anti-Nephi-Lehi's and Jesus have something to teach us. So there have been uh, some comments about um, how war and violence is seductive and our tendency is, and, uh, is, is to make it sacred and to offer up these justifications, right? And the harder way seems to be to, um, to look for a different uh, interpretation. Yeah, I think that's right. And, and I do think that is, um, that's where I would see the great danger. I actually do agree that, that, that Christians, faithful Christians of goodwill can, can disagree on some of the particulars here. Um, where I would say uh, that, that um, the, the trajectory we cannot go in is in sanctifying uh, violence and bloodshed of others. Again, even Captain Moroni, right? Didn't do, he did not, I, I actually take the record at its word that he did not delight in bloodshed. He, he, he shed a lot of blood, but I actually take it at its word that he did not delight in it. And so at the, you know, you know, I think the Book of Mormon and, and Restoration Scripture gives us a hard stop there, right? That we cannot sanctify, we cannot baptize violence, we cannot suppose it is a good thing in and of itself. Perhaps it can be justified in certain ways. And I have a forthcoming book in which I spend a lot of pages, uh, uh, me and my co-author David Pulsifer spent a lot of pages thinking about uh, whether violence can be justified. And, and that's an important theological term. Um, but it cannot be seen by Christians as a good in and of itself. It must always be seen with deep regret. Oh, there. Patrick, one of the questions or comments that I would like your reflection on has to do with um, asking for more stories and more analysis and more thought about the places where we see violence. Um, there's, there, these have, most of the examples have to do with war in the, in the classic sense or with, um, or with racial tension. Um, the examples of um, inter, intra-family of intimate violence um, and, the, and the cases of, what was your other example? Um, well, like Moriatin beating his servant. Beating his servant. Um, the idea of colonialism, I suppose, yeah. brings some others. But, but um, you have in, in your comments uh, expanded the concept of violence that we need to think about and deal with beyond the classic war. And I, I mean, that's seen as valuable. People are asking for more. Um, I, I open, you know, invite your comments there. Yeah, so uh, yeah, I'll be, I'll be shameless and, and plug my forthcoming book. It's still a year <laughs> away, uh, but it'll be called Proclaim Peace. And, and it does a lot of this work again, co-authored with 
David Pulsar and, and Miranda Wilcox, who's going to give the closing prayer, is is uh, editing the book as part of the Living Face series at the Maxwell Institute. But also, I'd, I'd point you to Chad Ford's book, which does a great, again, Dangerous Love, which does a great book of this, which expands our view of violence. So in peace studies, um, there's a very important researcher named Johann Galtung who, who came up with the concept not just of direct violence, which is the violence we think about, right? Hitting, bombing, shooting, you know, that kind of stuff. But he talked about structural violence and cultural violence as other ways that we do, uh, that we perpetrate violence. And that those require a different response uh, as well. And, and so, so much of what we're talking about in the culture right now, for instance, about systemic racism or about patriarchy, um, those are, are aspects that would fit oftentimes more in structural and cultural racism, although, of course, structural and cultural violence, although we see the way that they translate into direct violence as well. So I won't give a whole, again, this, the, there's a lot here, but if you want a one-stop shop, go, go, to, go to Chad's book uh, where, where he does a lot of this, or, or you can do some research online too. A lot of, a lot of this is available by Googling, just Google structural violence, cultural violence, um, and there, there's some really good resources uh, that, that you can find to learn more about that. All right. Thank you. Uh, go, go ahead. ahead. You want to bring in any last thoughts? No, I was going to bring you back in, Rebecca. <laughs> <laughs> I, think that, I think we've had a great discussion. I, all right, uh, thank you so much, Patrick, um, helping us to think about different ways to approach these scriptures um, and to recenter ourselves on the message of redemption uh, in the midst of living in this fallen world that might draw us to, um, to violence and, and to dissension. We'll close today with a prayer, which will be offered by Dr. Miranda Wilcox and hope you'll join us next week when we explore Alma 53 through 63 with Professor Farina King. Dr. Wilcox is an associate professor of English at Brigham Young University, where she teaches medieval literature and researches medieval religious culture. She edits the Maxwell Institute's Living Faith book series with Morgan Davis, which Patrick has mentioned, and which, if you don't know, has just announced an exciting new author initiative for women that I just have to mention. Thanks, Rebecca, and thank you, Patrick, for your wonderful lesson. Father in heaven, we um, thank thee for this opportunity today to um, study the scriptures and to reflect um, about the um, power of peace and how we can become better disciples of the Prince of Peace. Please bless us in our efforts that we might become more self-conscious of the swords um, that we inflict um, to those around us and please help us to um, be inspired with the creativity and the courage to change those swords into plowshares and to nourish those around us and to not inflict violence and harm. Um, we say these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. All right, thank you so much. Um, yeah, thanks.